Hello, amazing listeners. This is a special edition of Day 2 Cloud we're calling Cube Conversations. I spent two days in the Windy City attending KubeCon Cloud Native Con Chicago. I had the opportunity to speak to a wide array of vendors and open source maintainers about what's going on in the cloud native ecosystem. And from those conversations, I picked up on a few major themes, specifically platform engineering and security. This is part two of a two-part episode focused on security for cloud-native applications. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you're missing out on some excellent chats from folks from Aqua Security, Kasten, Tigera, and ThreadX. We'll start this half by talking to Kevin Bosek and Sitaram Iyer about the importance of machine identity in a zero-trust network model and how Venify can help. Joining me now for Cube Conversations is Kevin Bosek, the VP of Ecosystem and Community, and Sitaram Iyer, the Senior Director of Cloud Solutions from Venify. They're here to talk about the state of cloud native security and some fresh news they've released during the conference. Kevin and Sitaram, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. Can you first give the audience a little background on what Venify is? What, what do you folks do over there? It's great to be here in Chicago, the Windy City. We've been experiencing <laughs> the wind this morning. Yes, yes, indeed. Venify, we solve the machine identity problem. So if you think about it out there in the world, on the internet, clouds, there are two actors. There are machines and there are humans us and machines. <laughs> that could be a Kubernetes cluster. That could be an API gateway. That could be a virtual machine. It could be something that flies, floats, squawks, a device. Sure. And all of those are machines. And of course, they have to have an identity. You know, Aristotle solved this thousands of years ago that said, if something exists, it must have an identity. Well, we exist. We have identities. We've got oodles of usernames, passwords, biometrics. We've got pass keys now. Mm-hmm. Well, machines, of course, they exist, whether they exist for 20 seconds, for 20 minutes, 20 days, some 20 years. They must have identities, too. <laughs> right. uh, so that's the machine identity world. And we solve for that. We solve just like you do in, for customers and team members. We solve the life cycle, uh, the authentication, authorization, and governance problems around machine identity. Things like stopping those pesky outages that some of you, I'm sure, have experienced in your web browser or maybe when you've got mutual TLS working, things stop working. Mm. Uh, helping teams go faster. Maybe they're bringing together like Ansible and Vault and making sure that everywhere that you've got machine identity, uh, especially too, if you're working on an ingress and Kubernetes or if you're using service mesh, how do I get that uh, mutual TLS uh, certificate? If I get code signing to make sure I'm signing the right container so that we're authenticating when we let them into our clusters, all of those are machine identity management problems. And that's what Venify helps solve for. We're also a very um, active open source supporter. So we, of course, are the inventors of the CERT Manager project, mm. probably that many out there use every day, CERT Manager. <laughs> do. Yeah. We donate it to the CNCF, so we're very proud of it. Awesome. And I know machine identity is just part of the equation, right? It's, yes, you have to assign it an identity, but what is that identity able to do? How does it prove that it owns that identity? And how do you stop something from stealing that identity and impersonating that machine? So those are just some ideas off the top of my head, things that you have to solve for. Uh, but I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about just cloud-native security in general. Uh, Sitaram, what do you think are the biggest challenges in cloud-native security today? 
if you, you sort of you know expand when you said zoom out, uh, especially when people adopt cloud native architecture at scale. So we talked about the idea of you know adopting, let's say, Kubernetes um, as mm-hmm. an example for container orchestration. The number of workloads that run across the spectrum, especially in the cloud native world, is not one or two. There are thousands. We talk about workloads that span sometimes multiple clusters, multiple clouds, multiple you know hypervisors, and mm-hmm. also at the time where these workloads are highly ephemeral. So many times when we deploy and run these workloads, they may not even live for more than an hour sometimes, you know, for minutes. They are probably doing one thing and just are destroyed. So security in this context is something that needs to be thought of at a very, very different way. Traditionally, you know, you look at security where it's perimeter-based, you know, you have something that is well-defined. Security team says, you know, these are the policies, these are the things that you have to adhere to, and then it just works because you have physical sort of a network that is very well-known. Yeah, very static in nature. Yeah. Absolutely. But but when you look at cloud-native architectures, they are highly distributed. They are distributed across not just multiple cloud providers, but also within the cloud providers across multiple clusters, multiple trust domains. So the challenges of cloud-native security is not just to deal with something that is static, but continuous evolving dynamic nature of it and how do you tie in uh, you know, security at every aspects of the um, uh, the workloads. So typically in a cloud-native security world, we talk about four Cs. You know, there is the cluster, there is the container, there is the cloud, and then there is the code, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not in that order, but we start with cloud, cluster, containers, and code. So every single aspect of this has some aspect of security that needs to be tied into, whether you're writing secure code, whether your containers are secure, whether your clusters are following the model that is uh, secure in nature, and then the cloud provider security model as well. Mm-hmm. But where we come in and talk about identity being the core aspect that ties all of these these things, right? So when you think about workload, it has to have a unique identity that is issued, managed, life-cycled, governed for specifically for that workload as long as that workload lives and issued just in time. So, so these are the kind of things that are challenges that we often see and addressing that to ensure that it's not just one aspect of the C that is taken care of, but every aspect of the C has an identity that manifests itself. One, to ensure that once you issue an identity, that should be used in some way. So you talked about you know, what happens once an identity is stamped into a workload. It is used for authentication. And you use that authentication to be able to authorize uh, for workloads. Right. What happens with these workloads are distributed in a way where you have to federate those identities for authentication. So all of these are cloud-native security challenges that we see every day. Interesting. And so the four C's that you brought up, I immediately think, well, code, I want to sign my code. Absolutely. To show that this is legitimate code that came from me and not from some third-party foreign actor. And then the container, I want to sign the identity of the container when it's spun up. The cloud, it's really up to the cloud to manage that identity portion. You can request an identity, but they kind of issue it. And and the fourth is the cluster. Cluster. The cluster also has its own authentication and identity service that it's providing. That might rely on a third-party service. So tying all those things together, that's hard. <laughs> yep, absolutely. That is the hard part. Yep. Now, I understand that you produced a state-of-cloud-native security report 
Kevin, what were the key findings of that report? Well, the cool thing, again, about cloud-native security, I like to think of it as identity required, but batteries not included. Because, I mean, with cloud-native, we're, we're designing software and infrastructure to run anywhere. It could run out in the cloud. It could run on the lamppost. It could run, uh, you know, back in the data center. And that's the thing, you know, whether it's your container, whether it's the workload, whether it is actually also to the cloud. How do I know it's good or bad, friend or foe? It comes back to machine identity. So we asked over 800 professionals, their security and also uh, infrastructure uh, professionals, including platform uh, from the US, UK, Germany, and France, okay. and said, hey, What's up with cloud native security? And so some of the things that we found um, actually I think are very encouraging. So no surprise, three quarters and more said that we're going to see Kubernetes as the operating system of the cloud. I think we're already there. Yeah, we're getting there. Uh, sure. I think we're pretty much already there. <laughs> uh, what also was interesting, though, is that nine out of 10 said that they expect to see more vulnerabilities, more security issues in cloud native. Now you think, okay, um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I think that's a great thing because it shows us that everyone is expecting and we're prioritizing getting more observability, more consistency in the cloud native world, which means we're going to see more and more security issues. It would be bad at this point if we said, oh, yeah, you know, it's all Care Bears, hugs and kisses. And you know what? We're not going to see more security issues. No. So I thought that was a really, really interesting a finding from the research. Do you think that, that it's the prevalence of Kubernetes, and so there's more of a focus on the platform and all of its components that is bringing out these security issues because there's more you know, black hat hackers that are mm. looking to exploit these vulnerabilities and more white hat folks who are looking to fix and find those vulnerabilities right. before they're attacked? Is that sort of yeah. the general idea? Yeah, there's no security through obscurity. So, and then that, you know, it's a gift that that gives, which is as your platform becomes more popular, go figure, the attackers <laughs> become smarter. They're looking for it now. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, adversaries, while if they see something completely random and it's really hard, they're going to go someplace else. But if right. they see, though, an opportunity, which they then can replay and reuse and they're learned on, especially now with the power of bad guys, large language, language models to mm -hmm. hone their attacks. Yeah, they're going to go for it. And I think that's why we're only going to see more attacks on Kubernetes. We're starting to see it uh, more and more, whether uh, at the identity, at the workload level, it's on its way. I see. Was AI addressed within the report that you produced? Was that a concern of the folks that you interviewed? Yeah, it actually wasn't an element of the research, but talking with um, security professionals that, you know, we work with, you know, the attackers, A, they're already using their own large language models, but B, and this might be something for the audience, you, you know, we've been using cloud native infrastructure to do machine learning and now to operate large language models. Mm -hmm. The attackers are aware of that. And this is something that, again, I encourage whether you're in the platform or security team, you need to learn what your teams are doing with machine learning and large language models because that is a new point of attack that the adversary knows about and that especially security teams haven't caught up to that you know most machine learning, most large language models actually are built, trained, run in cloud native infrastructure. 
I've heard that that Kubernetes is the overwhelming platform that's used for machine learning and training models. And I got to imagine the software was not designed in such a way to be uh, hardened against attackers because it was probably designed and run in mostly private data centers that had a pretty fixed moat. But now that's mm -hmm. moving out into the public realm, that's a prime target for anybody, right? Absolutely. The AI or machine learning models, majority of the time uses Kubernetes because even OpenAI, when they started developing in 2016, 2017, so mm -hmm. they've been running it in Kubernetes. All of OpenAI yep. runs on <laughs> Kubernetes. Um, Kubernetes also, I think, um, is now completely optimized to run the NVIDIA hardware for their nodes. So there is a lot of things that are happening now to enable many of these applications to leverage at least modern AML models. But you're right, say, so these models, which also means that attackers can use it for, you know, learning and building their own ML models and then start to uh, leverage it for attacks. Yeah, trouble in two ways, yeah. if yeah. you will. Yeah. Well, we are at KubeCon Cloud Native Con, and I'm guessing that you might have some fresh announcements. Uh, what has Venify announced recently that you want to let everybody know about at the conference? Uh, so Vanify uh, recently announced Vanify Firefly, which is about bringing machine identity um, to the edge as close as possible to the workload so that they're getting um, the short-lived, in this case, TLS certificates for mutual authentication as close to the application. And they live only in memory. So uh, when the container goes away, as far as that issuer uh, that's being used for those certificates, being used for mutual authentication, it's gone. So mm -hmm. engineers love it because it's fast. It's deploy anywhere. You can build it into any cluster. The security teams love it because it comes with the policy that they've approved. So for authentication authorization, Firefly is a big step ahead, whether you're running a service mesh, whether you're running Spiffy Spire. So big, big step ahead. You essentially talked about these two workloads. How do you authenticate and how do you authorize, you know, who issues the identity? Right. And very often we don't want to rely on that identity to be issued by something that is centralized running somewhere else. So, so the idea with Firefly is to have a machine identity issuer that is autonomous, local, and completely distributable in a way where you just bootstrap that to your, um, your cluster, and then you have the signing capabilities that is local to you. But just as Kevin pointed out, there is also a security element to it in the form of policies that govern how those subordinate CAs are managed and what can they sign, how often they can sign, and whether it is for signing workloads that will live for minutes or hours or days or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. So there is this constant scale of workloads that are continuously being deployed and destroyed. There needs to be something that is equally running in a way where it is issuing and manage identities for authentication and authorization. That's essentially what Firefly does. Gotcha. I, I would love to dig more into that, but I know our time is okay. limited. Edge is super hot right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know everybody's talking about AI, but I keep hearing whispers of Edge, and I don't think that's accidental. So if folks want to learn more about Firefly, where would you point them? Where can they go check out more? Yeah, check out at venify.com. That's V-E-N-A-F-I. Dot com. You can learn about Flyerify. You can learn about our cloud-native security research. You can learn about everything we do with everything from HashiCorp Vault to uh, Kubernetes with Cert Manager. Check it out at Venify.com. Awesome. Well, Sidaram and Kevin, thank you so much for being with me on Day 2 Cloud for our Cube conversation. Thank you, Ned. See you, Ned. We spoke to Tigera and ThreadX on the previous security episode about blocking threats. 
But what about a more holistic view of your cloud-native environment? Abhinav Mishra from Uptix had some pointers. Joining me now for the Day 2 Cloud Cube Conversations is Abhi Mishra, Director of Product at Uptix, to talk about Kubernetes security challenges and some fresh news they've released during the conference. So, Abhi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Excited to have you on. Can you give the audience a little background on what Uptix is? What, what do you folks do? Yeah, absolutely. So Uptix is a unified uh, CNAP and XDR platform. And so what that means is we're trying to combine not just uh, cloud security, but starting all the way from the developer laptop to code to cloud. Especially you see attacks happening right from the developer productivity endpoints and they make their way, for example, to your cloud workloads and Kubernetes clusters. And so we want to provide a unified platform to do security around the entire supply chain, whether it's infrastructure as code scanning, vulnerability management, compliance, threat hunting. We have a lot of the eBPF-based capabilities to do different mm. threat hunting, forensic capabilities. We have customers scaling with us on our journey, whether it's PayPal, for example, running 1.5 million containers or <laughs> uh, other you know, social media companies running hundreds and thousands of pods uh, with us on their journey. So, Gotcha. Okay. And then you mentioned a few key things that I do want to dig into in, in a few moments. But first, I want to zoom out a yeah. little bit. One of the prevailing themes of KubeCon slash CloudNativeCon has been security. That yeah. seems to be a really big focus. I mean, for a good reason. There's mm -hmm. been some pretty high-profile breaches out there. No mm -hmm. one wants to be the next Okta. Yeah. So what do you think, in your estimation, is the, the biggest issue or set of issues facing folks in the cloud-native security space? Yeah, I think... Um, and it kind of correlates with this uh, trend around developer self-service and platform engineering where we want to provide a lot of the self-service capabilities, but having security around that where it's operationalized is mm -hmm. a big challenge. Uh, there are a lot of you know companies that are providing data, you know, vulnerability reports and compliance reports, but it's very hard to cut through the noise <laughs> and get to what is the key issue at hand and understanding how I can basically have different enforcements and different controls across, you know, not just from a reactive point of view, but from a proactive point of view, when code is being built, how do I protect earlier? So I'm not catching issues in runtime. For example, the SolarWinds example, where there was a supply chain attack and it was a DDoS attack that could have been caught earlier. Right. Yeah. And um, I think you're starting to see a lot of trends um, from a cloud native security. You're seeing this whole trend around AppSec. How do we provide security controls around application development when applications are being mm. developed? Uh, encouraging, you know, best development and DevSecOps practices around using, for example, images that have no vulnerabilities right from day zero or pulling from uh, trusted repositories, especially with the use of open source software. And I think just implementing those best sets of practices and really operationalizing security at scale is one of the biggest challenges that I see uh, today in the cloud native landscape. Right. I mean, you brought up a lot of good points there. If we're assuming we're starting with the container image, mm -hmm. then you want that image to have no vulnerabilities or as, as few as possible. Yeah. And then your application developer is going to put some code in yeah. that image. Yeah. You want to make sure that code is at least well-written yeah. and passes your basic security scans. And then once it's running in the wild, you want to monitor what's going on with it. So being able to collect all that telemetry and logging data and then parse through it, that's, that's a lot of significant challenges there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say... I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's one tool that can do it all. Yeah, I mean, I would say, well, 
from an optics point of view, <laughs> you know, that's what we're attempting to do and with the you know new announcements, which I'll get into uh, in a bit. But I think just making sure that we can have security that is operationalized around those typical DevSecOps practices, right? Where, for example, your images today, the base image is built by a SecOps team and a DevOps team, mm. and they're handing that out to everybody saying, hey, use this. But then some vulnerability is introduced at the application layer and to be able to drill down into those specific image layer vulnerabilities and making sure that the development teams and business units are responsible for fixing those. And if they can't fix those now, give them a little bit of a grace period. So having some policy controls that enables, you know, secure guardrails, but doesn't block developer productivity. I think that's a big challenge we're seeing. And that's why, you know, a lot of times there's this constant tension between SecOps and engineering teams <laughs> right. uh, to, to fix these things because just the operationalization of it is a big challenge. Right. I could certainly see there being a tension where I have a developer that wants to use an image that the security team has not yet built and blessed. Mm -hmm. They yep. found this image that has what they need off on you know just regular Docker Hub, and I want to pull that in and use that for my application. Yeah, and the security team says no, you you can't. Yeah, <laughs> we haven't blessed that. And then when the developer's like, well, I'm just going to do it anyway. Yeah, and not tell anybody. And then you need to be able to catch that mm -hmm. before it makes its way into production. Yeah, and I think this is where the Kubernetes practices, and we're seeing this. It's it's great to see at at KubeCon whether it's GitOps admission controls, like things like Gatekeeper and Caverno, like policy enforcements that you can. Use across your software development lifecycle, you know, starting with your CI scans, scanning your container registries, and then enforcing admission controls to say block, you know, malicious images with that may have some crypto miners or may have some vulnerable software or block insecure components from your Kubernetes infra from getting deployed. And, you know, with uptakes, we're trying to, and we're actually, what we do is we leverage a lot of the best Kubernetes security practices, take a lot of this, you know, like, for example, with Gatekeeper, we allow customers to enforce their Gatekeeper policies um, and we enforce as an admission controller so that you know, insecure resources are not getting deployed. So you're starting to see, I feel, not just the visualization of security, but really the operationalization, uh, starting from all the way from code to cloud and policy controls as well. Okay, I see. Now, earlier you had mentioned using eBPF mm -hmm. as, as part of the mechanism for detecting potential security issues. Can you tell me a little more about how you're leveraging eBPF today? We basically are using OS query and doing eBPF telemetry on top, and that gets installed as a daemon set on the cluster. So we're able to catch, we look at things like process events, socket events, listening ports, uh, we're, and we look at the uh, processes and file systems in real time. We can see different types of container detection. So for example, there's a framework out there called Kubernetes Goat. It was developed by uh, actually one of our threat researchers, as well as uh, another uh, Kubernetes uh, community security researcher, Madhu. And a lot of customers ask, like, how can we catch things like container breakouts or uh, privilege escalations? And so what we do is we look at the telemetry in real time. We look at, like, for example, a process is mounted and suddenly 
from a pod, it's able to get inside of the host and access mm-hmm. the nodes and the certificates and the cluster. <laughs> and we map that all in a detection graph and correlate it to the MITRE attack framework. And then we point out what are the risky misconfigurations on your control plane. So for example, the user was able to do the breakout because of a default service account that had access privileges on the cluster. Mm. Or there is a insecure network policy that allowed internet traffic. And we show you, hey, this pod was internet exposed, it had critical vulnerabilities, and that's why the malicious attacker was able to get inside of that pod and then do the container breakout. So I think making sure that we can tell the end-to-end story, not just show that detection, but show how it's correlated with the misconfiguration so SecOps can fix that is uh, one of the key things that you know we see as a big value add. Right. So you're not just looking at the container image. You're not just looking at the code. So you're also looking at what's happening at the cluster level. Yeah, real time. We're actually, so for vulnerability management, we look at real time processes that are being used. So for example, if there is a software that is in use from a process point of view, and there's a vulnerability associated, then we'll report that because we want to reduce the number of false positives. So Mm -hmm. we're actually looking at the processes from an eBPF point of view in real time and then flagging those vulnerabilities on the runtime side. Mm -hmm. And then we're correlating, of course, back to what you were saying on the image side to make sure that, you know, when the developer builds, the images are being stored in a registry that it doesn't contain those vulnerabilities as well. Gotcha. Would you say that an organization needs to be at a certain maturity level to adopt this type of security, uh, are we assuming that they already have the basics in place? Mm. They already are doing basic uh, like code analysis and, and static analysis of code for vulnerabilities? Or would you say you, know, you could just take any organization at any maturity level and roll in the solution to up their security? What we typically see is that organizations are doing some form of it, but mm-hmm. it's very sort of scattered. So for example, vulnerability management, right? We see maybe customers using like a Dependabot or uh, like GitHub scanning on the uh, pipeline side. Sure. Maybe they're not doing anything for their registry. And then for runtime, they might have something, but you're not able to have the entire single console to do your vulnerability management. And operationalization, again, becomes a challenge because that same CVE you're looking for in three different platforms or two different platforms, right. and you don't know what's right and what's wrong. Similarly, you're not able to you know work backwards and understand, hey, I found this vulnerability in runtime. How do I make sure that you know, it's never introduced as part of my software development lifecycle or build policies saying, hey, the libcurl vulnerability, you know, for example, that came out, make sure that that's not used in any software going forward that I build. And so I think we kind of see scattered efforts and, and same thing for, you know, compliance as a platform where, you know, maybe they're doing compliance like CIS for cloud, but not doing it for Kubernetes, or they're doing it only at the control plane level because they're using agent lists. But if you want to do the real-time compliance, you also have to look in the the nodes as well and understand Mm -hmm. the data plane information that's coming in. And so I think we see scattered efforts. And typically when we come in as a platform, it's pretty seamless integration because it's a one-time deployment, but we're able to look at the, both the control plane and the data plane and map it together. And I think that's where kind of the power and beauty comes. Right. You alluded to some announcements at KubeCon. So what's new? What's going on with Uptix? Yeah. So a lot of great things that we're doing. So first one is code to cloud traceability and Kubernetes supply chain security. Mm. So some of the big challenges are understanding if I have 
for example, a given container image, and there are vulnerabilities, which developer commits introduce those, which hmm. specific PRs, um, and also bringing in the actual uh, security telemetry from the supply chain components and integrating it as part of your policy check. So for example, um, CIS has supply chain benchmarks, and you want to make sure when developer sandboxes are being built, hey, is my GitHub MFA enabled? Mm-hmm. Are my Jenkins worker nodes secured? These are the source build and deployment integrity checks that CIS has recommended. So what we can do is we have basically this concept of image policies where you can introduce all these supply chain checks, vulnerability checks, malware secrets, and enforce that across the supply chain from CI, registry, and runtime. Okay. And, and we have an image traceability where you can basically trace an image back to its original source from a commit point of view and make sure that you know the developers, whoever is working on these things are not introducing vulnerabilities from the time they're doing code itself. And we show an end-to-end diagram, almost like an attack path, but for images. Right, so you're not trying to blame a particular developer, but you want to trace back and go, hey, Joe, you introduced a vulnerability. Here's what happened. Just so you know, you don't do it again. Yeah. Because if they don't know, they don't realize that's something they did, then they may introduce that same vulnerability into four other images that they're working on. Exactly. And being able to make sure, you know, you're assigning to the right business unit, right? Because it's very hard to trace back, like, you know, which business unit is responsible for what. And with image in layers, what we were talking about, you know, a lot of times everybody's using the same base, but new commits are being introduced on top. So there's allocation of responsibility, especially when you're scaling across millions of containers and their ephemeral assets are short-lived right. becomes an even bigger challenge. So so that's one of the big things we're announcing. The other one is uh, those detections. So we support uh, detections from the Kubernetes GOAT framework. So anything like container breakouts, reverse shells, uh, crypto mining, RBAC controls, we're able to detect those in real time and you know, correlate those back to misconfigurations. But the Kubernetes GOAT is is a, a great ecosystem play for us because they solve for some of the most common types of uh, Kubernetes attacks. And we see a lot of value add and in, in being able to detect those and map those back to the MITRE attack framework and then provide container remediations on top, whether that's killing a process or using forensics like a Yara rule scan to analyze the signature of a process. So because a lot of times malicious attackers, they'll be like a port scan it should be called Nmap, but they're calling it something else. And so the Yara rule scans in our platform can actually catch that and say, hey, the attacker is doing a masqueraded port scan and you should catch that and, and detect on it. So Interesting. So even if they rename Nmap something else, it still does that fingerprinting of the yeah, process. Exactly. And the last thing is internet exposure. So we're basically, we have Kubernetes network security where a lot of platforms typically look at it from a cloud point of view. They'll look at cloud attack path, maybe your mm-hmm. transit gateway VPC. The challenge we see is that you, you see like your CNIs, right? Like Cilium and Calico, they're doing network policy enforcements, but a lot of times those network policies are misconfigured and they're hard to write because they're in YAML. So what we want to do is uh, we want to enhance what these guys are doing by providing misconfigurations and showing, hey, your, your network policies are misconfigured and it's leading to internet exposure from inside the cluster and going up. And that's one of the uh, big announcements for us because we believe you know, from a network security point of view, a lot of the attention is not going inside the cluster. And that's where a lot of the attacks are beginning from. When a pod 
network security policy or namespace network security policy from a YAML or code point of view is not being written correctly. So Gotcha. All right. Well, if folks are interested in learning more, what's a good place for them to go and check it out? Yeah. So if you go to uptix.com and and go to product, you can go to Kubernetes, KSPM side of things. And we have our end-to-end platform story there for Kubernetes, as well as the general uptix platform story. Uh, There's a solution brief, which you can access there. And more so, we actually introduced a Mastering Kubernetes Security ebook. So we talk around all the different principles, you know, showcasing thought leadership around things like RBACs, network security, compliance, like NSA hardening, Mm -hmm. vulnerability management with shift left controls, admission controls, and then talk about like best practices and, you know, how a platform, for example, like Uptix can help you solve for those in the Kubernetes security side of things. Oh, that sounds like a good read. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a good read. It's a, a way to just, you know, we're all continuously learning through the process. So a great way to like know about around what are the best practices and then start to see like, hey, am I checking the boxes or they're, you know, software that I need to bring to the table. So okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Abby, thank you so much for being a guest on Day 2 Cloud. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks, you too. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. And lastly, what is going on with cloud-native application development? Have things gotten any more secure? Brian Fox of Sonotype had some thoughts and feelings to share. Joining me now for the Day 2 Cloud Cube Conversations is Brian Fox, co-founder and CTO of Sonotype, here to talk about the state of the software supply chain. So welcome to the show. Excited to have you, Brian. Can you tell us a little bit about Sonotype? What are you and what do you do? Yeah, thanks for having me. So Sonotype is the company that runs the Maven Central repository where all of the world gets its open source Java. We've done that for over 16 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of cool to be able to say that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and through that visibility, you know, we've built products initially focused on the Maven ecosystem like Nexus Repository Manager. But then through the visibility we had in running Central, we could see that there were challenges that people weren't doing a good job of picking non-vulnerable components. We, we started making those observations more than 13 years ago. And so we've built products and platforms to help large enterprises be able to deal with what the world now refers to as software composition analysis and software supply chain security. Okay. And, you know, it's funny because when you look at, like, the popular languages, the languages people are, like, most excited about, you don't usually see Java in the list. But I know it actually runs pretty decent portion of the applications out there. So are you still seeing a ton of activity in the world of Java? We had over a trillion downloads last year from Maven Central. Wow. And every year we include that stat in our state of the software supply chain report. And it looks like the hockey stick curve. It continues. You know, I remember when we were excited when it was, you know, 2 million. Um, <laughs> right. Wow. So every year it, it continues to grow and, and it's continuing to grow on very large numbers. Okay, so based off of what patterns you see, what people are downloading, you can make some inferences about the level of security of their applications, like if they're pulling potentially vulnerable code. Yeah, I mean, we use those statistics more as an understanding of the the ecosystem at large. Okay. And, you know, a a shocking statistic is that uh, here we are beginning in November uh, 23, almost two full years post Log4j. Yeah. And as we sit here right now, a full quarter of the downloads of Log4j versions are of those known vulnerable versions, two years later. Wow. So there are still that many people who have not updated their applications to use 
<laughs> the non-vulnerable version. And they continue to be downloaded, which means they continue to be built into new applications. It's not just like the software that was built two years ago and continues to run. Mm-hmm. That's almost certainly still the case. What I'm talking about is developers and development infrastructure is still pulling these things down right now. That's just crazy right? Two years later. And so, you know, another statistic when we looked at uh, across the the spectrum, is it just log4j? Is this a a unique problem? When something is being consumed from the repository and it is already known to be vulnerable, 96% of the time, the project has already released a fix. So it means 96% of the time, these things were avoidable. Right. So these types of statistics, by being able to look at the ecosystem at large, helps us understand how we're doing as an industry. And we're not doing very well. You mentioned the state of the software supply chain report. Are these statistics part of that report or does that report have a whole bunch of other interesting findings? These are are some of the statistics of the report. We've been doing it for nine years in a row now. Okay. And, and so, you know, every year we try to take a different look at different elements of it. There are certain things that we compare year over year, but uh, we explore different things. One of the things we've looked at the last couple of years are survey differences between uh, individual contributors and managers. You know, probably unsurprising that managers tend to think they're doing a better job at security than the people who are actually building it right. in these different dimensions. And and so there's a lot of those interesting things. Um, this year, one of the things we looked at, um, we leveraged um, scorecard data for the last past two years. Last year, actually, it was somewhat interesting where we took each of the, the OpenSSF scorecard is what I'm talking about. It's a project within the Open Source uh, Security Foundation that provides... Um, ways to sort of quantify the quality and the health of different open source projects. Okay. And so we we looked at the individual metrics there to see how predictive they could be uh, of uh, a quality product. And we, we had some interesting findings there um, and how to tweak those algorithms. But this year, we also took a look at there was a new one that kind of measured active maintenance of the projects. And this metric looks at the core contributors and over a 90-day period checks to see if they've responded to issues, if they've committed, if there's been any history on the mailing list. And Mm -hmm. we found that only about 11% of those projects across the entire ecosystem. This is not just Maven. This would be Maven and, and NPM and Python. Um, only 11% were actively maintained in the last 90 days. Now, I tend to be sort of a pessimist and jaded <laughs> on these things, and even I was surprised at how low that is. Only 11%. Only 11%. So that means 89% have not had any updates or contributions in the last 90 days. Yeah, not even an update, like literally a commit or a comment on an issue tracker or an email activity. So that's that's not a good trend. It's also not super surprising given, you know, the proliferation of how many projects are out there. Many of them might be, um, you know, side projects and these types of things. But, sure. you know, there are millions and millions of open source components out there. If only 11% of them are actively maintained, that's interesting. You probably want to use those 11% for your projects and not these other things. Over the last nine years you've been doing this report, would you say that things have gotten better, gotten worse, or we just have a better idea of the scope of the problem? I think they're slowly getting better, and we definitely have a better understanding of the scope, the global we. I mean, Sonatype, we've been <laughs> trying to raise awareness of this for a very long time, um, but it took things like solar winds and Log4J for, for everybody mm-hmm. else to wake up and realize, like, wow, there really is a problem here, and we, we should start doing something about it. And what is that thing? If you could wave your magic wand 
and fix this problem, how would you go about fixing these software supply chain issues? Well, I think it starts with understanding what the dependencies actually are in your software. You know, about 90% of the dependencies in a modern uh, application or the the code base as a whole tends to be of open source. Mm -hmm. And certainly the developers tend to know what those things are, but they might not know the transitive dependencies. You know, you would depend on one thing. In Java, it might pull in 10 to 100 more. In in NPM, it can literally be 1,000 more things. So the developers may not understand all of the dependencies all the way down. But what I really mean is the organization, the management of the development needs to understand these things because when the next log4j happens, you need to be able to know quickly, are you even using this component? Are you using the affected versions? Which applications are they in? And so many organizations went through that sort of tabletop exercise two years ago with Log4J. Some of them took six months just to figure it out. We had customers who remediated their portfolio of thousands of applications in four days. It was like a non-event for them because they already had infrastructure in place to understand these are all the dependencies, these are the versions we're using, and then when the data about the vulnerable Log4J went in, it went directly to their development leads. So the teams were able to immediately just update, right? There wasn't a, a survey period where they got, you know, let's <laughs> let's survey all our 4,000, you know, tech leads and find out if they're doing anything. Right. So if you could do one thing, it's build that infrastructure. I like to use the auto manufacturing as an example because pretty much everybody can can relate to this on a personal level. You expect that your auto manufacturer knows what parts went into your car so that they do a recall like if the airbags are bad. Right, right. They don't build all those parts themselves. They get those parts from other places. And if one of those subcontractors or other companies screws up, it's incumbent on the vehicle manufacturer to alert you and know that that component's in your car. That's right. And so they have to track all of those, and we expect that. But mm-hmm. as I've demonstrated with some of these stats, and there are more, <laughs> but you know, the software industry is not able to do that. And so why do we allow that to be the case? Why are we okay with that? We shouldn't be okay with that. And to extend the analogy a little bit, the fact that 25% of the time, people are pulling these known vulnerable log4js today is like the auto manufacturer is using those known vulnerable Takata airbags from years ago and putting them into 2024 model year cars right now. Like that would be headline news. That would be yeah. unacceptable. And yet this is what was happening right now in, in software. So that's the one thing. And fortunately, you know, the executive order from President Biden a couple years ago mandated software bill of materials for everything being sold to the government. And they've continued to beat that drum with additional uh, guidance and regulations. So it's keeping this conversation in the mind of much of the industry. That was a problem we had in the past, that there would be a big event like struts, like like Equifax, you right. know, these types of things, people would get all excited and then they would regress to the mean. But I think now that there are regulations, not just within the US, but also over in Europe, it's, it's not fading into the background. So I'm somewhat optimistic that we will get there begrudgingly. <laughs> right. but, but it's progress compared to uh, a decade ago. Okay, so a key portion of this is knowing what you have to begin with. Picking apart those applications, understanding not only the immediate dependencies, but the transitive dependencies of those applications. Now I have to do something with that information and keep it up to date. So 
What does that look like? Maybe I can do a survey of my software initially, but how do I make sure that every time that software is updated, that bill of materials is also updated? You have to have tools. And that's what we've been building for enterprises forever. You know, before SBOM was a collection of syllables and a standard <laughs> that you could lean on, we've been doing that because that was a way to solve this problem. If you don't even understand what you have, how can you reason about making better choices? Mm -hmm. How can you do the equivalent of a recall? You can't. Right. Right. And so there are tooling uh, available uh, systems. We, of course, sell some um, that help you understand that, automate that, because it's the only way to deal with it. When you're dealing with a portfolio of 75 to 80,000 dependencies in a, in a typical, you know, medium sized organization in a large, take a global bank or something, it can be you know, a million individual different components across all the ecosystems, you can't rely on humans to keep that up to date. It's just right. not possible, right? <laughs> so uh, fortunately, you know, with software, unlike with a car, there is no machine that you can point at a car and have it work backwards and figure out where every single nut and bolt and airbag came from. But with the software, that is possible with the digital fingerprints and things like that. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because companies don't always have access to the original source code for some of their applications, but they'd like to know if there's a vulnerability they might remediate against, even if they can't update the software itself. So that's right. What, what is the process for that? So, you know, our process, um, you know, we look at the binaries and we, we take fingerprints of all the pieces inside and then match that up against known fingerprinting. So it's, it's a little bit like DNA fingerprinting, hmm. if you will, of looking at a virus and understanding where it came from by the, the DNA fingerprint. That's basically what happens for the, the binaries. You know, there are other techniques. If you have, um, you know, package managers and you have some starts of bill of materials, that information can also be aggregated together. Um, but we like to look at the binary whenever possible because the, the developer build system might specify one dependency, but something else might happen. You know, the, and, and sometimes that else can be, by the way, intentionally malicious components. You know, we haven't even talked about that part yet. You know, <laughs> so we've been talking about components that have bugs in them that lead to security flaws. Sure. There's another whole class where the attackers have figured out that our defenses here are effectively non-existent. And so they're starting to put intentionally malicious components into the supply chain. So when developers accidentally grab the one that has an underscore instead of a dash um, right. or, you know, a classic typo squatting type of behaviors, that um, that thing drops a backdoor, exfiltrates data. You know, they tend to operate in a smash and grab type of fashion. And we're seeing that even more. And that was one of the findings in the report. We've been tracking this since 2017. It's grown, you know, the previous three years on average 750% each year for three years in a row. And then last year it doubled again. So last year, the number of wow. new, new malicious components that we saw was equal to all of the previous four years combined. Right. So, and, and this, like the consumption, that's a hockey stick up. This, this is showing the same trend, but it's a bad hockey stick. <laughs> so, so, and, and I think this is partly because so many people are still struggling to deal with the last war log for J. You know, and, and things like it, where they don't have the inventory, they can't deal with the next vulnerability that comes out, and yet there's a whole new vector, which isn't even relying on that. It is trying to sneak in the back door and blow up your factory, right? And so, you know, this is kind of the era that we're, we're living in right now, um, you know, and, and cybercrime is projected to be, you know, a $10.5 trillion industry mm -hmm. in the next couple of years. And, you know, I kind of equate that back into that's the, that's the funding that's being invested against us. Right. That's the war chest that they're going after. So this problem is going to continue to get worse until we get much better at defending against it. Right. 
To what degree do you think that this is a lack of education, not necessarily among developers, but some of the other folks who have to support the developers? I'm thinking of the managers mm -hmm. and also the ops side that needs to help implement these tool chains and keep them going. I, I think that is exactly the problem. You know, the awareness is growing. I no longer have to spend time educating CISOs and others that, yes, your developers are using open source. Yes, it's a lot. And yes, there are problems <laughs> with it. Like, I right. think people generally have understood that now. But we haven't deeply ingrained the behaviors that are required to deal with that. Certainly the malicious stuff, this might be the first time your audience is hearing about some mm -hmm. of this and the scale of the problem. But even the the more, you know, let's call them boring vulnerabilities, I think the expectation is that it's too hard to analyze all the dependencies. There's too many, so we can't do anything about it. You know, that's just not true. There's lots mm -hmm. of tools that can help. And uh, thinking about it in ways that can empower the developers to make better decisions. You know, if you give them that visibility, they will choose safer components. But often developers are just left to sort of fetch me a rock, fly blind, and then, you know, security comes in much later and says, hey, you messed up, you have all these dependencies. Organizationally, that doesn't help a lot because that tends to be a tit-for-tat battle and people get waivers and they ship it anyway. Right. But if you deeply integrate this stuff into your supply chain, into your DevOps kind of world or your developer experience is kind of the, the more modern term, mm -hmm. it can help the developers right away. Like, they don't want to pick bad components right. intentionally. They're not doing that on purpose. Um, but if they're not given the ability to to reason about it, then what do you expect is going to happen? So, you know, I, th I think all of those things are are sort of not deeply understood. You, you will never talk to a security team who doesn't say like, yes, I have static analysis, right? Like that's what I mean by deeply ingrained. Like that's like belt and suspenders for them. Mm -hmm. I think understanding how to manage the dependencies needs to get to the same level because it's the other big part of the software that's being ignored. Right. And then the security team along with the developers can lobby for the necessary support they need the money they need to put in these processes and these tools. That's right. And one of the really interesting findings to make this not so so sad and sound like a tax, you know, it was, it was I think it was in the 2019 report, which is also available on our website. We looked at companies that only cared about going fast. Like that was the only thing that just ship it, ship it, ship it. We don't care. Security slows us down. Mm -hmm. You know, there were companies that said, we don't care if security slows us down. We're going to be super safe or we're going to go slow. And then there were companies that kind of fit somewhere in the middle. What we found in the end, if I told you that the companies that were choosing security over going fast, that in this world of all the things I've just explained to you, you'd be like, that kind of makes sense. We should slow down and be safer. Mm -hmm. But what we actually found when we analyzed that was that the companies that were solving for both problems at the same time were both more secure than those who only cared about being secure and faster than the people who only cared about being faster. Huh. And it kind of doesn't make sense at first, but then think about it. If you only cared about going really fast, does that mean you got to not fix the log4j when it came up? No, you, of course you did. But what it meant is you had no mechanisms to deal with that reasonably. And if you only cared about being secure, it means your pipelines and everything else probably move very slowly. So right. you weren't able to respond quickly, right? So the good news is that, you know, when companies do this effectively, they end up being, you know, about 30% more efficient on their productivity. So it means you can produce 30% more. You can do it 30% cheaper. However you choose to slice and dice it, it doesn't have to be a tax. That's, I think, the good news. But again, people aren't thinking through the, the whole system that way. Right. Need to focus on the positive and, and sell it up the chain That's so right. everybody's on board. That's awesome. Right. Well, if folks want to grab a copy of this report and read more, where's the best place for them to go? So sonatype.com slash SSCR. 
Okay. We'll include a link in the show notes. And Brian Fox, thank you so much for being a guest on Day 2 Cloud. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Great. Thanks for having me. That will do it for our security-focused Cube conversations. This is the first time Day 2 Cloud has done something like this. So more than ever, I would love your feedback. You can ping us on LinkedIn. You can fill out the contact form on day2cloud.io. You could even join the Packet Pushers Slack group at packetpushers.com slash slack. If you missed the platform engineering focused Cube Conversation episodes, they're definitely worth checking out with cool tech from Acorn Labs, Check and Pure Storage. Thanks to our guests for appearing on Day 2 Cloud and virtual high fives to you for tuning in, you amazingly awesome human being. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.